When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies, the show on the Pitcherless Podcast Network where we dive into the stories, myths, and legends and players who helped shape the game of baseball throughout its history across the world and the players who help make it the game we love and help make us love the game itself. I'm your host, Daniel Port. Thanks everyone for being here. I'm really excited about this week's episode. I felt going with last week's theme that I wanted to talk a little bit about after going through Albert Bell and how underrated he was. I wanted to talk a little bit this week about another underrated player. I thought that would be a fun thing to look at. And players who don't properly recognize their contributions or how good they were in retrospect. And so for me, the essence of that type of player is Eddie Murray. I grew up watching Eddie Murray. I love Eddie Murray. And what's interesting is at first I kind of, you start reading things in the, in the media and you start looking at Eddie Murray and what it turns out is he's like the, that player that like, if you listen to music, I'll give a good example. I love this musician named Warren Zevon. And most people probably know Warren Zevon by now. But the funny thing about Warren Zevon is for a long time, uh, kind of Frank Zappa and guys like that had the same reputation where they weren't anyone's, f- like in the in, in the populace, like our favorite musicians, but they're every musician's favorite musician. That they were the guy that when you'd be like, oh, who's the guy who influenced you the most? And you'd be talking to Bruce Springsteen or someone like that. And they'd be like, Warren Zevon. And most people's response was, who is Warren Zevon? And I feel like that's Eddie Murray, is that there is a huge swath of baseball fans that stretch from the the 1970s into the the 1980s and the 1990s that you could ask several different fan bases, Baltimore, Cleveland, L.A. with the Dodgers, that who was your favorite player? And so many people respond, Eddie Murray. And... That to me is fascinating because then when you talk about who's some of the greatest hitters of all time and who would you not want to face with the game on the line, and not that many people would mention Eddie Murray, but he's at the top of everyone's list of like favorite players. And this is a guy who, it's a really interesting sort of debate because a fun fact, and this is things you might not know about Eddie Murray, did you know he hit over 500 home runs in his career? Did you know he's a Hall of Famer? Did you know he hit 3,000 hits? Did you know he's one of only seven players to hit 3,000 hits and 500 home runs? And these are all things that I didn't realize. I knew him because he played for Cleveland for two years in the heart of the 90s. But when you start looking at the numbers, they're incredibly impressive. His 68.6 war is 76th all-time he is 11th all-time in at-bats with 1,336, and he's 8th all-time in plate appearances with 12,817. 
He is 11th all-time in RBIs with 1,917. He's 39th in walks with 1,333. And he is 29th all-time with 2,156 singles. Uh, you just start going on the list, and it really starts to pop out to you that this was a guy who contributed at a high level for a long time. He's 14th all-time in hits with 3,255. He's 17th all-time with times on base with 4,606. He's 22nd all-time in extra base hits with 1,099. You just start, like I said, you just go down the line and you start looking at all the accolades and all of the things that speak to the longevity of a career and consistency that you could depend on over a 22-year career. That's the only way you get up to those higher numbers. Again, Murray is just one of those guys that probably was one of the better hitters in baseball, and we just don't ever really recognize him of that. And one of the themes you're going to see throughout this entire episode is consistency. I'm going to say the word about a thousand times because that's who Eddie Murray was. There was basically just, you could pencil him in for somewhere between 25 and 32 home runs every single year. You pencil him in for an average between 280 and 310 every single year. 100 plus RBIs every single year. Near 100 runs every single year. It just like clockwork and that's how he earned the nickname steady eddie which is what he went by his entire career and it just is really mind-boggling to me that we don't talk about murray more when we talk about the history of baseball and i think there's actually two reasons for that one of them is that we tend to value i think peak elite seasons over consistency Right, that, that's something when we talk about the history of baseball, we tend to notice and value the the big, shiny sort of objects uh, in terms of season production, or in terms of peaks or things like that more than we do steady production over a long period of time. And I think hopefully by the time we're done with this, we'll ask the question, which is more valuable, or are they equal? Do we want a guy who, say, hits 60, you know, something home runs for? eight years and then kind of peters off due to injuries or age. I'm, I'm looking at you like Griffey as a great example. Or do we value a guy who basically when you look at this and we'll get into it, Murray for basically like a 15 year period is an above average hitter um, to an elite hitter for almost like 15 years, right? And he never really is the best player in the league at any given point, but he's always one of the best players in the league for a period well beyond what most players do. And so we're going to kind of look at that. We're going to ask the question of how do we look at longevity versus these sort of elite outputs. Then the other reason is, I think, is because, well, we called him Steady Eddie. Well, everyone who was a fan of Eddie Murray loved Eddie Murray. And while his teammates, they're, they're numerous, you know, testify, what do you call them, like testaments of teammates, talking about how great of a teammate he was and how just awesome he was to be around and how he was funny and fun and all of those things. That is not how the media saw him. The word I see a lot that describes his relationship with the media was surly. <laughs> and I feel like he had a, a difficult relationship with the media. There's a couple of different periods in his life that caused him to not trust the media very early on. And he did basically everything in his power to not talk to the media to have a relationship with the media, to avoid them at all costs. And the hard part is the media then, therefore, doesn't get a great impression of Murray. 
And that changes how we then receive the opinion of Murray. It's how we then think of Murray as well. And so while he's beloved by any fan that for a team, of a team that he played for, any anyone else might not get the the same impression of him, might not get to see or hear about him as much because he didn't connect with the national media and because he didn't, or really any of the media, we didn't really either. Sometimes as fans, unless you rooted for that team and unless you got to really know him that way. So I think those two reasons are why we don't talk about Murray as much. And it's also worth noting that there was not a lot of flash to Eddie Murray's game. He had a beautiful swing, and but it was that kind of like effortless, but not like flashy or show. It's not like some kind of effortless, say, Griffey swing was, where it felt like he was put on earth to hit home runs by like the baseball gods. It was a very just perfect textbook swing, but wasn't showy. In fact, writer Michael P. Geffner, back in 1995, right after Murray hit his career 3,000 hit, described his game this way. His game never has been one of knock dead showmanship, but of delicious subtlety and nuance, and an unwavering focus on singular goals, strict attention to, and the repetition of the smallest of details, executed game after game, year after year, with a wondrous mechanical efficiency. It is a game so blatantly understated, so incredibly unpretentious, that it has made Eddie Murray the most underrated and misunderstood player of his generation. And I think that sums it up perfectly. And... I think that there's uh, something to that, that at some point there is these big moments that come out of it. And like he didn't hit towering home runs. He hit these perfect line drives that just, that, you know, sailed over the fence and seemed like they're never going to come down. He never quite had that, that showmanship in the way he played baseball. And, and that's part of why he flourished in Baltimore and Cleveland and places that had a more blue collar I think mentality of you show up to work, you go to work, you get the job done kind of places. And I think that's why you really connected with those teams and with those players. But it may have also been one of those things that worked against him on the national level and historically speaking. And why we don't talk about him that much and why he is forgotten amongst when we talk about the game's best players or best hitters. But I'm hoping that by the time we're done here, I'll change that. By the time we are done with this episode, you will see just how good Eddie Murray was and how consistent he was and what it meant to have him on his team and especially what he means to the city of Baltimore, but also to to fans of other teams and really to the story of baseball as a whole. Now, we're going to jump into Murray's life and his career here, but before we do that, let's actually take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll jump into the life and career of Eddie Murray. This podcast is sponsored by Underdog. Want to make money making picks on MLB games? Then you have to try Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. In Underdog's Pick'em game, you just pick your favorite baseball players and predict whether they will go higher or lower on stats like strikeouts, hits, and more. Pick to two to five players, get all your picks right, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Be sure to sign up with the promo code PITCHERLIST and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100 so you have some bonus cash to start playing with. Again, that's UnderdogFantasy.com or Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Sign up with promo code PITCHERLIST and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. 
Must be 18 or older, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, 21 or older in Massachusetts and Arizona, and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. In Tennessee, call 1-800-889-9789. Welcome back. We're going to jump through some of Murray's early life just because... We're going to run pretty long on this. He has a long career and a lot of great seasons to talk about. Murray was born Eddie Clarence Murray in Los Angeles on February 24, 1956. He was the eighth of 12 children. His parents were Charlie and Carrie Bell Fairchild Murray, and they had moved from Mississippi to Los Angeles. His father was a forklift operator for a rug company called the Ludlow Rug Company, and all five boys that were in the family, because there are five boys and seven girls of those 12 children, all of them played baseball professionally, which is just, I mean, you talk about the, a pedigree in terms of a family. His oldest brother, Charles, played six seasons in Houston, making as far as double A. He had 37 home runs for one year for Class A, uh, in, uh, for A ball in California. He, his brothers, Leon and Venice, were in the Giants organization. But Eddie would end up the best out of all of them. And one of the most shocking things about Eddie Murray is that he only played baseball during his senior year, apparently, in high school. He was a pitcher, a star pitcher, as a matter of fact. He excelled immensely at baseball as a high schooler. Fun fact, he actually played baseball with a lesser known at the time, a shortstop that went by the name of Osborne Smith. Yeah, that's right. He played baseball with Ozzie Smith on the same team, which is just incredible i think it's really cool can you imagine playing that team or being able to say oh i got the my butt kicked by eddie murray and ozzy smith in high school sounds pretty great now murray ends up getting drafted in the third round of the 1973 draft by the baltimore orioles and he was signed by a by by a scout named ray Poitavint. now technically murray's uh minor league career started off fairly uneventful but point of it would come back into Murray's life, so to say, far down the line when, in 1979, when the Orioles, not to bury the lead, would go to the World Series. I would do a, like an interview with, with noted journalist Dick Young, who was known for being controversial and being a sort of headline grabbing and things like that. And in the interview, point of it said that, that his family would insult and threaten him for more money and do all these things that they got worse and worse at one point he had to visit the murray home 17 times that he claimed at one point that one time one of the brothers tried to run me over in the yard with a car screwing me to get out and stay out and he felt he said that murray never talked and, and finally supposedly stopped the family's assaults and signed for the original offer which is something like twenty thousand dollars or whatever and the weird part is that Murray was never consulted for the story. Was never asked to confirm or verify the story. Was not was not given any lead for it. And later down the line, when this comes out in 1979, and Murray's denied it, said it was nothing like that. And multiple sources said it was nothing like that. That that it would really ruin his relationship with the media for the rest of his career. As we mentioned, he really butted heads and, and avoided the media at all costs for the entire rest of his career. This guy is at this point of it. Guy is a bit of a notorious character in the story of Eddie Murray. But 
that won't come out for too many years from now. He reports in 1973 to 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 the minors and is great. He flies through the minor leagues and makes his major league de- league debut in 1977 where he absolutely lights the league on fire as a rookie. He hits across 160 games. He's 21 years old, by the way. He hits 283 with a 333 OBP and an 803 OPS, which is good for a 123 OPS plus. It's a little bit of a depressed offensive environment at this point in 1977. He hits 27 home runs, has 29 doubles. He has 88 RBIs to go along with 81 runs scored. Despite having to DH for most of the season, he ends up running away with Rookie of the Year that year. Baltimore would uh, win 97 games that year and finish second in the AL East, but it's just an all-time season for for Murray there. Very few 21-year-olds come up and and do this, especially in the offensive environment that he was playing in. He's worth, what, 3.2 war that year? Considering he only was DHing for most of the time, and we've ta- I'll talk about this throughout the whole thing, but obviously that hurts his WAR numbers since there's a penalty for DHing to WAR because he doesn't play in the field all that much. But really, it's just a fantastic rookie season, and this is the interesting thing: he basically hits 27 home runs as a rookie, and he wouldn't hit below 25 home runs until. 1981, which is a season shortened by a strike, and he led the league in home runs that year. He wouldn't hit truly in a full season below 25 home runs again until 1986. This is 1977, by the way. So he just comes up and immediately starts excelling. And everyone was very excited about Murray. The Orioles were winning games, and to then get to add Murray into it was just a huge source of excitement for that team. If, because he was DHing, he didn't necessarily have a spot for sure yet, and that all would change the following year in 1978. Now, of course, you would have expected something of a uh, a down year, or at least a sophomore slump from Murray, but this would be the first of many years in 1978 where he would earn the nickname Steady Eddie, as he would be called throughout his, his career, as he essentially takes that fantastic rookie season and just does it again, almost Number for number, he hits 285 with a 356 OBP and an 836 OPS, which at the time was good for a 140 OPS plus. He hits 27 home runs, 32 doubles, three triples. He steals six bases and he drives 95 runs with 85 runs scored. Again, essentially recreating the exact same year he just had the one home rookie of the year. He goes to his first All-Star game that year, and he actually finishes eighth in the MVP voting, which makes sense considering he was, what, let's see here. He was, yeah, that's actually pretty good considering he was probably like 15th or so in war that year with 4.3. That feels about right if you look at the MVP numbers that year. About 10 guys were somewhere between basically six and four war. So big lumping there, but really... Just, this becomes who, as a player, Eddie Murray is, is that you just penciled him in for a certain amount of production, and that was it, and you just moved on, and it's interesting that way that there's no real season in Murray's career where, as we go through these, that I'm going to go, man, this is just an all-timer season. There really isn't one 
in his career. But this is a pattern you're going to start seeing develop is that he'll see big jumps up in his average for quite a while. Other than that, it's, it's just you know what you're going to get out of Murray. What's going to be great. And you can just always depend on it. And, and, and that's something that gets underrated, I think, sometimes in in baseball. Uh, you know, the, we want the extremes. We want the historic producers. And you're going to see here, because as I mentioned, that when you turn around and say, oh, Eddie Murray is a Hall of Famer. You know, okay, I get it. He played for 21 years. When I say, oh, we have 504 home runs. You'd be like, wait, what? And, and that's like the thing is that it's just because he just, you could just pencil it in for 21 years. This 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 consistent, always their production. And it starts really here. The Orioles do not make the playoffs that year. And despite Murray's sort of emergence here at 22 years old, it would be one more year still before they would make uh, the playoffs. Now, moving into 1979, Murray, for the first time, now moves into the first base role. Uh, as I mentioned before, he was primarily D- the DH, and he would do first base and DH throughout his entire career. And looking at Murray's career, he's known as a great defender. And he won three gold gloves, as we'll get to throughout his career. But this is one of those sort of things that you never know because we don't really have the ability to go back and watch a lot of that or see a lot of it. If it was like true good first base defense or if the defensive war numbers don't really paint him in that sort of light. But at the time, he had a reputation when everything I've read about Murray was that once he stepped in the first base, he was just an, an incredible defensive first baseman and just steady as all can be there. And that's where we're going to use a lot is, is steady. But that, that, this is where he becomes the Orioles first baseman for quite some time. Now, moving into 1979, he, again, has another great season. He hits 295 with a 369 OBP and a 475 slugging percentage, which is good for an 844 OPS, which even out to a 130 OPS plus. He drives in 99 runs and scores 90 runs. He has 30 doubles to go along with those 25 home runs. He steals even 10 bases, which I think of, if you listen to these numbers, doesn't sound, I don't know, like Anthony Rizzo or a player like that, that, that this is who I think of as like a Rizzo or a, of like the modern equivalent. Maybe not Freddie Freeman, but those guys, maybe even a like Carlos Santana type, where I think that's a little more of a stretch because Santana wasn't as great as Murray or Prime Rizzo or, uh, or certainly Freddie Freeman, but I think it's all in that vein. And... It's just interesting when you see a first baseman who can steal you 10 bases. I know we tend to think of things in a fantasy terms these days where I was like, oh, that's a great thing to have out of your first baseman as a fantasy player. But what it really tells me, and I love to see the overall base number, base running numbers for Murray. In fact, can I get his BSR? Let's see here. But yeah, so if you look, actually, I see right here he's worth 1.4 BSR, which is Fangraphs. It's the component that they use for war. That's the base running component. And you can actually see it if you look at BSR for uh, a player on Fangraphs. That's their the base running component of war. And it's listed separately as well. And he had 1.4 BSR, which was second in the league amongst first basemen behind Cecil Cooper, who was also kind of one of the better first basemen at the time. But the point simply being that you don't get a, a lot of that base running production out of your first baseman normally 
And that's just another little element of, and for me, a lot of times when I see base running numbers and good base running numbers, I look at things like BSR or how many times they go from first to third on singles or things like that. And it's worth noting out of those 10 stolen bases, Murray only got thrown out two times. So out of 12 attempts, he was 10 for 12, which is pretty darn good. It just, it speaks to the intelligence of the player for me, that, that I, I, I get an idea of sometimes how smart they are and how well they read the ball and and how well they read situations they're in, that sort of thing. That's just an interesting element to point out of Murray's game at that time period was that he was still worth usually in the high single digits to double digits in stolen bases. And like I said, for first baseman, that's always interesting to point out. Now, he go he finishes he does not he's not an all star that year and but he does finish 11th in the MVP voting he was worth 4.9 WAR that year which is solid I, he's worth zero defensive WAR and a note on defensive WAR I think a lot of times it can be off based on what position they play if that makes sense if you look at the WAR calculations. Defensive war as a component is oftentimes different and weighted differently based on what position you play. And so it's worth noting that a first base is not weighted as heavily as, say, if you were a center fielder. So I don't necessarily think the defensive war numbers are an accurate representation of how good of a, a defender a first baseman is. So I, I don't quite know what to make of that, but it does hurt his war numbers throughout his career. And we can feel one way or the other about that. I think depending on the position, it's something that Ward doesn't always get quite right in the way that we, we would want it to. So now he's worth, like I said, 4.9 more that season. And in general, the Orioles are very good. They win the AL East that season and make the playoffs for the first time in Murray's career thanks to winning 102 games. They were just utterly fantastic that season. Now, it's worth remembering at this point in baseball history there's no wild card and so there's no wild card or division series at this point in time in baseball so they go straight into the AL championship series where they'll face the at the time they're the California Angels I believe now then they become the Anaheim Angels and now they're Los Angeles Angels but they go in and they beat the Angels in four games and Murray's fantastic it's 417 with a home run, five RBIs, three runs scored, five walks, and a 1.255 OPS over the series. It's worth noting, too, and I think this is fascinating, uh, looking throughout baseball history, which is what we do here, you don't realize, because I think we have gotten so used to in the modern era of the Orioles being bad until this year, and then being solid through, say, I think of what I think of as like the, the Calroquin Jr. like 90s and that time period but they never were like I don't think of them as like a dominant team that I you know because during my lifetime they really weren't right in the way that it turns out they used to be it's just as a time period if you think of it this way so starting in 1966 they win the World Series in 1969 they lose in the World Series 1970 they win the World Series in 1971 they lose in the World Series then in 73, they lose in the championship series. In 74, they lose in the championship series. In 79 here, they lose, to spoiler, they're actually going to go make the World Series and then uh, unfortunately lose in the World Series. But if you look at that stretch, 
but you're talking one, two, three, four, five World Series in roughly 13 years. I am 30, what, I'm 38 years old. And I tell people all the time we get too down on the Guardians, which are my team. I'm like, man, we saw three World Series in our lifetimes. Yes, we didn't win any of them, but we saw them in our lifetime. We're lucky. And I just think that that's five in, what, like I said, 13 years. There was a lot of expectations on these Orioles teams uh, because they were expected to win. They'd been doing it for quite a while now. And we're one of the more dominant teams over the stretch in baseball, really. And so, as I mentioned, they do go to the World Series and they, they do lose in said World Series to Pittsburgh. Murray is okay in the series. He only hits 154. He does hit a home run with two RBIs, a stolen base, four walks, and three runs scored. He puts up a lot of the counting numbers that you would want in a seven-game series, but does not, unfortunately, get as many hits as you would expect him to. And it seems like the well, it was a hard fought, like I said, it went seven games long. It Obviously, that loss stung, and it would be a few more years before they would redeem themselves in that situation, but we'll get there. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. So the 1979 season ends, and the Orioles end, head into the 1980 season with a ton of momentum and looking for a little bit of redemption. And while they wouldn't find it that season, Murray was fantastic, as always. But again, basically pencil in his season. He hits 300 with a 519 slugging percentage and 873 OPS, which is good for a 138 OPS plus. He hits 32 home runs with 116 RBIs. He steals seven bases. He has 36 doubles. He scores 100 runs. An incredible season for Murray, but it's just repetition, repeat. I, like You just look at it and you, we're just going to keep going down the line here, but just about as dependable as you can get here. He finishes sixth in the MVP voting that season which that's about a little generous. He only had, he was only worth 4.5 war that year, but, and George Brett rightfully won in that year with a 9.4 war, just to give you an idea. But it still is a sign of how good his production was, how well he was respected at the time period that he was getting all the way up to sixth in MVP voting. And also, I guess, a sign of how the defensive component, again, of war doesn't quite match up with what he was able to produce on the field, at least in the eye test of the viewer and with his offensive production here. Now, Baltimore, it's actually worth noting for the record, this is actually a cool Eddie Murray anecdote that I want to bring up from his Sabre article that was written by Alan Cohen. I think this is crazy. Murray, one of the things about Murray is that he almost always played every game, right? You name every single season until he really gets older, it's 160 games, 161 games. Uh, you know, 100, he played 158 games this season. That one of the steady parts of Eddie Murray's game is that he was in the lineup every day and producing. And this was almost the first year he had his first major injury. In July, according to the story, the Orioles were playing Kansas City. Murray played in every game of the season and took a ground ball from George Brett and basically and. This will happen at first base or either of the corners, really. Came up off of the bat and hit like a rock or hit something and took a crazy high hop and actually hit Murray right above the right the right eye. And there's all kinds of things that can happen off of that. You know, 
cracked up bone up there. That's really easy to do. Uh, a lot of different injuries could, could mess with your eyesight, all of those things, concussions, any of that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of concerns. So Murray gets pulled out of the game. He ended up having to get stitches, and he only misses four games. Now, first you thought, well, I just mentioned all the different things that this can do, and especially it can really muck with your vision. Apparently it did. He, he, he said that, you know, he did have vision issues a little bit. Didn't matter. Over the last 76 games of the season, this is nuts. He hits 316 with 18 home runs and 59 RBIs across 76 games. That's awesome, considering for a large chunk of it, he couldn't see right. <laughs> I think that's just a remarkable sort of testament to there's a certain part of consistency that i think of i was actually just watching this the other day it was a cool adley rushman thing that he was doing where he was practicing throwing to second base blindfolded from the catcher position and there's this idea that he just was able to feel both feel where second base was but also that his throwing motion was so in rhythm and so repeatable that the eyes weren't necessary to do this and I do wonder if at some point someone like Eddie Murray, who is famous for his steady production, his beautiful, perfect, easy swing, that there was some point in which the vision wasn't always the key part, that, that he could just replicate that. And as long as he was close enough, it just it's just it's really remarkable. I think it's a really cool thing to, to say that he was having a hard time seeing and then hit better than he was before he got hit with the ball it is really something else. Now, the Orioles do well that season. Again, as I mentioned, they're looking for revenge. They win 100 games. You really can't ask for much more of a baseball team than winning 100 games. Although they don't win the division because the Yankees win 103 games. So they end up somehow winning 100 games and being three games back of the division lead. Now, the hard part is, of course, as we mentioned, there's no division series, there's no wild card yet, so they don't make the playoffs. It's crazy to win 100 games and not make the playoffs. So I know there's a lot of people who would say that this season was a disappointing one, but I don't know how you can paint it that way. Winning 100 games is winning 100 games. There's no other way to spin it or twist it. You've you've earned earned those games. Now, going from 1980 to 1981, 1981 was a tumultuous year for Major League Baseball. I know I talk a lot about the 1994 strike because we've been talking a lot of players from that era, but it's worth noting oh, one of the le- uh, we don't talk about as much, but there was a large player strike in 1981 as well, which cut the season short to just 99 games. And obviously, I'm always in favor of as a person, as a fan of labor and of the players and things like that. And there was a lot of different things that were really going on at the time period. The biggest issue was that free agency taking a, a turn where the owners wanted compensation, essentially, for a free agent leaving their team. Essentially, the way that it was worded by the baseball reference article on it that I'm reading is that if, say, a, a star player was signed as a free agent by another team, they wanted a player uh, to receive a player of similar value, which almost in my head feels like a trade (laughs) but i I, it seems wild now thinking about where free agency is now and and we complain about free agency now but that seems like a much better system than what the owners were proposing in 1981 and i guess the way historically it plays out this this similar system that the owners are looking for have been put in the nfl and the national hockey league 
and it had like squashed free agency completely. And so the players wanted nothing to do with with that system, and so they went on strike. And another crazy factor in the season was because of the way the strike happened, it, it went from July, June 12th to August 10th. So we wouldn't miss the playoffs, and we didn't miss the the World Series or anything like that. But what's weird is all the teams ended up, uh, they didn't just like say, okay, everyone's going to end up with the same amount of games. Some of the teams would end up with different amount of games played and different records and basically 57 games roughly or 57 days of games for uh were canceled and so some teams ended up with more games played than others which as you can imagine really wreaked havoc on the standings now the the orioles would play in let's see it looks like they finished 59 and 46 so they got right around 105 games or so and murray played 99 games that season he has a fantastic season. It's 294 uh, with a 360 OBP, a 534 slugging percentage, and 895 OPS, which is the highest OPS of his career at the time, which is good for a 156 OPS plus. He hits 22 home runs, which leads the AL. He hits 78 RBIs, which also leads the AL, and also would score 57 runs. He would be an all-star because while, yes, the All-Star game was technically ruled out that year. Uh, they ended up moving it into August, and it's actually what started the second half of the season after the strike. So he is named an All-Star for the second time in his career, and he finishes fifth in MVP voting, which, let's see, he was worth about 3.7 war that year. So he probably would have ended up somewhere in that 4.5 to 5 war range, as per usual. Again, steady Eddie. But Dwight Evans ended up winning it that year with 6.7 war, so he obviously didn't deserve to win it. But he was certainly worthy of the the fifth place finish that he had and this is always going to be the hard part is that murray is never probably at any point in his career the best player in the league i feel like one of the great things about the mvp award is that sometimes it ends up feeling like a lifetime achievement award as it should because it's the hall of fame and i think you can sometimes lose players in the forest because they at no point were the best player in the league at any point in time. But as we go down the list and we see the consistency, Murray's going to be one of the best players. He's going to be a top five player for almost his entire first 10 to 15 years of his career. And I think sometimes we can look at those players with a little bit of disdain. Well, like they never won an MVP or they never even were like really in contention for an MVP. They never had a seven, eight war season. And it's interesting to look at Murray's career and see a different route, a different path you can take to a Hall of Fame career, to a to, to greatness, so to say. And again, it harkens to me in my head of Freddie Freeman or those types of players. Sometimes you're like, I really have, I mean, Freddie Freeman's won an MVP. But even like a Jose Ramirez or something like that, where you're, oh, we're going to reward them for always being one of the best players, as opposed to being the best player. It's all over a time period. So now the strike ends and Baltimore finishes second again in the AL East, uh, you know, winning almost 60% of their games. Just really uh, 
sort of brutal run where they would always finish just behind the Yankees. But they, they missed the playoffs again. And now they're starting to feel like, what do they have to do really to get get back into the playoffs? And, and they wouldn't quite get there yet in 1982, but they would, would certainly come close again. And a big part of that was, once again, Murray just chalking up another year. This was actually probably one of his best seasons he ever had. Um, he hits 316 with a 391 OBP in 1982 with a 549 slugging percentage and a 940 OPS, which is good for a 156 OPS plus. He hits 32 home runs with 30 doubles, 87 runs scored, and 110 RBIs to go along with seven stolen bases. And he makes his second consecutive All-Star game, his third of his career. He wins his first gold glove and actually finishes second in MVP voting, which... If you take a look, he was not worthy of probably that second place finish. He only had 5.2 war. But again, caveats to his defense and the way we looked at defense back then and really the way I think defense works for first baseman for war. Uh, Robin Yount rightfully won with 10.5 war. And you've got some players ahead of him like Ricky Henderson, and Paul Molitor, George Brett. But he certainly deserved to be counted amongst those players and sometimes i wonder and this is just another thought i do think sometimes in some of these votings for mvp as you'll see as we go through even though by war and by modern standards it doesn't hold up i do think the other part of this is that lifetime achievement part where he is being rewarded and acknowledged for his steadiness for his constant and consistent contributions which i think we can undervalue when we look at a single season in a vacuum. So you have to wonder some of the part where he kept just finishing better in the MVP voting, despite putting up the same numbers <laughs> is because a, he was slightly improving again in 1981. We finished fifth in the MVP voting in 895 OPS here in 1982. He has a 940 OPS. Now we know because of OPS plus that the league in general, because both those seasons had a 156 OPS plus, we know that in general, both those seasons, Offense seemed to be on the rise in general, but it's still worth giving some credit for year-to-year improvement and for and for just how consistent he was. And I think that he's being rewarded in this situation for that. Now, it is worth noting that this is probably his best season by many standards. The 940 OPS would end up being the highest of his career. The the 156 OPS plus is not actually. He would technically beat that a couple years later, and it's not like his highest RBI total or his highest run score total of any point, but it is the highest average of his career for one year. Actually, no, it's not. I'm sorry. He would top it about a decade later, if not more, but this was really probably one of his best, if not his best all-around seasons in the major leagues. Now, as I mentioned, the Orioles have been one of the more dominant teams of the 70s and the really the 60s, and you could tell that there was a little bit of a, an itch, both amongst the fandom and amongst the players, to get back into the World Series, to get back to the winning ways uh, of the Orioles, and, and the Orioles had already gotten, this team in its iteration had gotten there and lost, and so they were hungry, and that you could feel like, from everything that I read from that time period and things like that, it looks like they were really chomping at the bit to to get back there. 
1983 would be the year that they did that. Now, Murray is awesome in 1983. He basically just repeats the same season uh, from last year. He hits 306 with a 393 OBP, with a 538 slugging percentage, and a 930 OPS, which for the third year in a row was good for a 156 OPS+. Plus. <laughs> just, just take a second to think about that. He replicated his OPS plus numbers for the for three seasons in a row, and not in the way of oh they're within a point or two, but like the exact number for three years in a row. That's how consistent he was. I, I know I keep saying it over and over, but it's you really have to. I really want to hammer it home because you have to appreciate that if you want to get how special Eddie Murray was and why he's so beloved. Because as I mentioned, I think if you looked at most people who had never had Eddie Murray on a team of theirs. They'd be like, who? Or wouldn't necessarily know he was a Hall of Famer or know that he hit over 500 home runs or know any of the cool things that we're talking about today. But when you recognize that consistency and you see those numbers and you see just how you never had to worry about him. He was going to play every game. Practically, he was going to always produce these numbers. It was just, you. how do you not fall in love with that as a fan, right? If you were a Baltimore fan of this time period, or I think of even the two to three, two and a half years or so he spent in Cleveland when I got through for him, like you just, you come to love that kind of player and you really have to get and have hammered home how consistent he was to really appreciate that. In addition to that, he hits 33 home runs which is just one more than the year before, 111 RBIs, which is one more than the year before. But this time he really ramps up the runs scored where he scores 115 runs and he has 30 doubles to go along with those 33 home runs. He steals just five bases, but still, again, for a first baseman, you're just seeing that he's able to contribute in ways other than just with the bat. He is named an all-star again for the third year in a row. He wins his second gold glove, his first silver slugger, and for the second year in a row also finishes second in the MVP voting. Again, he was actually fifth in war that year because he puts up a 6.7 war a total, which, you know, for, as we mentioned, the way first baseman worked in in the MVP voting and in war, th- this was pretty darn good for him getting up to 6.7 war. It was just 0.2 war behind Ricky Henderson that year and was only what, 1.5 war behind winner Cal Ripken Jr., his teammate. This was a probably, in my opinion, right up there with, you know, the year before for Murray's best season as a pro. In fact, I I do think this is his best season as a pro. He's he's really great throughout the season. The Orioles win the AL East that year after winning 98 games, and Murray's a big reason why uh, he's really the heart of that order he leads the team in home runs he's second team in batting average he leads the team in rbis he leads the team in, well actually second in the team in runs scored just really was the heart and soul of that lineup that would then go on to win 98 games and the al east so they go to the playoffs and face the white Sox in the alcs Murray's good. He hits just 267 across the four games that it takes uh, Baltimore to win the series. But he does hit a home run, has three RBIs, scores five runs, walks three times, and has an 856 OPS across the series. So uh, big contributions come from him to winning that series and putting Baltimore back into the World Series. 
Now, in the World Series itself against Philadelphia, he would hit 250 with two home runs, three RBIs, two runs scored, a walk, and an 836 OPS as Baltimore would emerge victorious this time in five games, taking and clinching the World Series here. This would be the only World Series of Murray's career, spoiler alert, but it's not the last time he'd be in the series, and we'll get there, but it would be 12 more years before he gets there, and Murray's called this the highlight of his career. Let's see, he says here during his Hall of Fame speech, that is the only time I actually got to win the World Series. It's awesome when you win. There were times when guys would play 25 years and never got to win the World Series. It lets you know how special that is because that was the only one I got. And it meant the world to him and really meant a lot to Baltimore fans in general because this is actually the last time they'd win the World Series. They have not, Baltimore's not won the World Series since 1983. In fact, I've been in the playoffs just one, two, three, four, five, and depending on how they do this season, which seems like they're playoff bound, there'll be six times since 1983 they've actually made the playoffs. So this is huge. This is a huge moment for Baltimore fans. And I'm sure if you have a older Baltimore fan, in your life. I wasn't even born yet when this happened. Uh, This was two years before I was born in 1985. But if you have an older Baltimore fan or probably someone in your life that was the man man or woman who made you an Oriole fan, they probably remember this and remember fondly because, like I said, this is the last time they would win the World Series and they've only made the playoffs a handful of times since then. It's a big moment in Orioles history as well. It's important to note Murray in particular had some some moments of glory in the World Series that year as well. He had been fairly quiet through the first couple games of the series, but he he was a big part of a big rally in Game 4. But Game 5 was really the biggest uh, moment for him. He had actually hit a home run in the second inning of Game 5. And then coming in, let's see, it looks like in the fourth inning, he actually hits his second home run of the game, and that ended up securing the win as they would win 4 nothing, and would actually be the game, the, the, the series clinching win. And so the, the game which they got to actually clinch was driven and propelled by Murray's bat, which is a huge, just you think of those lasting moments. We all have those things that sort of get embedded in ourselves that we'll always remember, and it's always like the final catch of a series or some of that or things like that, but... Murray hitting two home runs in Game 5 will always be ingrained in Orioles fans' minds. You know, that, that cements him in Orioles history here. So now coming fresh off of that World Series win in 1983, we jump into 1984. 1984 is rinse, repeat, recycle, I guess, for, for Freddie Murray as we see it just literally a repeat of 1983. He hits 306 with a 410 OBP, a 509 slugging percentage, and a 918 OPS, which is good for a league-leading OPS of plus of 157. He also led the league that year in OBP in walks with 107 and in games played with 162. He also hits 29 home runs with 110 RBIs. He steals 10 bases to go along with 97 runs scored and 26 doubles. Just, again... 
just mark him down for those numbers every single year right now at this point in his career. He is an all-star again for the fourth consecutive year. He wins his third and final gold glove as long as well as the second silver slugger award and finishes fourth in the MVP voting. He was worth a career high seven, what? 7.1 war. Yep. 7.1 war, which is fourth in the AL technically third amongst hitters. Again, Carroll Jr. was the deserved winner and he did win with 10 war that year, but a really respectable showing for Murray, again, considering he's playing first base. That just tells you how good offensively he, he was that year. Just a really consistent blah, blah, blah. You've heard me say it for like six consecutive seasons now, but just bet on death taxes and Eddie Murray hitting for these numbers every single year for a while. Now, unfortunately, while Ripken is awesome and, well, Ripken Jr., I should say, is fantastic and wins MVP, and Murray finishes fourth in war amongst AL hitters that year, the Orioles struggle for a variety of reasons. Some is it aging veterans. Some of it is pitching staff didn't quite hold up as well as it has uh, in the past. But they falter and win just 85 games that year and finish fifth in the AL East. Now, if we move into the next year, 1985, uh, several significant things happen, including yours truly being born. But uh, moving away from me in his age 29 season, Murray just rinses and repeats. And it's interesting. So by in 1984, that was probably Murray's best year by war. It was probably boosted uh, by a little bit by him playing in all 162 games, obviously. But in many ways, 1985 is maybe his best offensive season, give or take, depending on what metric you look at and what you're looking at. He hits 297 with a 383 OBP, 523 slugging percentage, and a 906 OPS, which is good for a 149 OPS plus. He hits 31 home runs, 124 RBIs, and scores 111 runs with five stolen bases and 37 doubles. Just a fantastic season. He's an all-star again. He finished fifth in MVP voting with a mark of, let's see, it looks like a 5.6 war. He was around sixth in the league, so that's about right. Ricky Henderson won it that year with 9.9 war, which feels fitting. That's what, And he actually, of all things, finished third in MVP voting that year. It was won by Don Mattingly that year, who certainly did not necessarily deserve the award and finished just uh, 9.9 war ahead of Murray that year. I don't know. Uh, I think I've talked about this in the Ricky Henderson episode, if you go back, and probably actually talked about in the George Brett episode as well when I did that, that this is one of the all-time highway robbery MVP votings that Mattingly really shouldn't have won it that year. Yes, he had 145 RBIs. I get it, and that's really impressive. But Ricky Henderson had almost a full, what, 3.4 war higher than him. Again, Murray was only 0.9 behind him. Obviously, Murray shouldn't have won it that year, but Mattingly shouldn't have either. Um, unfortunately, the Orioles aren't any better this season, despite Murray's excellence along with Carrick and Jr.'s excellence. Once again, they only win 83 games and finish fourth in the AL East. So you start to see some of the the let down from winning the World Series. There's a lot of times you win a World Series and oftentimes it all contracts get too expensive. Players who broke out during those times that led to that run oftentimes get too expensive. There's a lot of different things that end up happening that sometimes make it hard to continue to have success after winning a World Series. And we see that here as the Orioles go from the best in, in North America to 
finishing fourth in their division. It's not it's not exactly tough times for the Orioles, but it started to become a question of were they in the middle of a rebuild? Ripken was only 24 at that point, Ripken Jr. But Murray was getting older. He was now uh, 29. There's a lot of questions as to what the future in Baltimore for the whole team was and what direction they were going to head. Now, Murray also was battling throughout the whole season some personal tragedy in his family, and that really sat with him, but he still had an incredible season that year. And as a reward, even though, again, people were wondering, is Baltimore rebuilding, or are they moving into trying to just reload to make another run, whatnot, Murray is given a five-year contract extension. Those were $13 million. And here's the fascinating thing. So that makes him, at the time, baseball's highest paid player. And don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not uncommon, I think, for the highest paid player in baseball to not be the best player in baseball, even though Murray was fantastic and a future Hall of Famer. But it's such an interesting thing to me that at some point I could look at you and say, hey, did you know in 1985, Eddie Murray was the highest paid player in baseball. It's just one of those things that it reflects how valuable he was, obviously, and how beloved he was in Baltimore and how valuable he was to that team and what he meant to them and all those things. But you look at me being like, really? It was like the whole league bad? And it's like, no, the whole league was great. And that's more of a sign and a reflection of how good Eddie Murray was and how we have somehow allowed that to, to not resonate through the annals of of baseball that, that, that we don't talk about Eddie Murray enough even though at some point you have to realize he had 500 home runs I'll say that over and over because it is just one of those numbers that until you hear it at times it doesn't really register with you just how good he is and, and he at one point was the highest paid player in baseball that's how good Eddie Murray was and I really want to hammer that home because it really helps you understand why this guy was so beloved even though when you start listing off the best hitters to ever play the game, no one mentions Murray. And really looking back at it, the question is, they, they, probably, they really should be, right? We go from 1985 into 1986. And again, just rinse, repeat, except for power. And we'll get there. Murray hits 305 with a 396 OBP and an 859 OPS, with, which is good for a 136 OPS plus. But he hits just 17 home runs to go along with 84 RBIs, 25 doubles, and 61 runs scored across 137 games. And this is his age 30 season. He had practically played you know, every game uh, every season. I mean, he missed five or six games every year like anyone does. He had just come off a year two years ago where he had played 162 games. He had played over 150 the year before and basically had most every year of his career he, at Going into 29, 30 years old, that, that catches up with him, you have to wonder. And he actually struggles for a large chunk of the season with a hamstring injury and goes on the disabled list, or the, back then it was called the disabled list, now we call it the injured list, misses basically a month of the season from basically all of July. And that's just, I mean, probably a sign of him getting a little older, even also a sign of, I think oftentimes when someone ends up in the Hall of Fame, especially a guy like Eddie Murray, who is about consistent production rather than this huge chunk of elite years or things like that, that one of the big things that plays into it is just simply dumb luck. Does your body hold up? And, and obviously, Murray was playing first base, and that puts a little less stress and strain on you, but he played so many games, and it seems like it caught up with him a little bit. 
this year, so he misses, like I said, almost a full month. And there's an interesting thing about here whether or not there were some rumors that went through the media and went through really baseball about whether or not Murray was essentially playing hard, was giving the Orioles their best effort. And this is wild to me, first off. Again, you're talking about the captain consistency. He's putting up a lot of the same numbers he normally would have. And this is one of the interesting things that Murray's kind of known, as I mentioned in the beginning, known for being a little surly with the media. That was something that really played into how we perceived Eddie Murray. How we talked about him was that he was not tight with the media and was not necessarily friendly to the media at all. And some of this wonders, you have to wonder if a lot of this, a lot of it built out of various different things out of his career. But one of the things you have to think factored in here was that at some point they allowed then Orioles owner at the time, a man named Edward Bennett Williams, to essentially publicly call out Murray, saying he did not feel he was trying his hardest, which absolutely rubbed Murray the wrong way, and really built a rift between him and the Orioles and the, that owner, and and just widened the gap between Murray and 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 the media and the distance he then kept between him and the media. And Murray, on the other side of this coin, actually felt that he basically been an instrumental part of them winning the World Series in 1983. And the moment they finished the uh, the World Series, that he felt the Orioles had really done the work to keep that team, to sustain that, that winning uh, team. And he felt they could have gone back to the World Series if they had just kept the team built up and going. And instead, by in 1986, they won... Despite, again, Murray being an all-star and putting up all-star numbers, finished last place in the AL East and only won 73 games. So Murray may have had a point between you and me, but obviously things got a little a little dicey between Murray and management at the, age of, at the end of 1986. Now, heading into uh, 1987, Murray is just goes back to being kind of Eddie Murray at first, but also we see a drop in, instead of power, the power comes back, but now we see a little bit of a drop in average. He does play 160 games and stays healthy all season, but he hits just 277 with a 352 OBP, a 477 slugging percentage, an 829 OPS, and a 120 OPS plus to go along with 30 home runs, 91 RBIs, just one stolen base, 28 doubles and 89 runs scored. So it's a great season. That's a really stellar season. But it seems like he got off to a slow start that year and really struggled coming out of the gate, which again, considering everything that was going on, the way he was being spoken about in the media and this rift between him and the Orioles, probably isn't that surprising when we really think about it. But he does still put up steady production, does not make the All-Star game, nor gets MVP votes, a gold glove, silver slugger, none of it. He goes without winning an award or getting MVP votes for the first time since really his rookie year. He won Rookie of the Year in 1977. So actually, this is the first time in his career he isn't either an All-Star or wins an award or has at least some form of MVP votes since he entered the league, really. And it's a shame and sort of a little baffling because... Just you look at it again, it's 30 home runs. He, you know, 
yeah, it's 20% better by OPS than the average hitter. Like, he, he put up an all-star worthy season at the very least. But again, he came out slow out of the gate, so I get it. But nonetheless, Murray is not an all-star that year in 1987. And a lot of this all starts to build and build and build the Orioles are bad again that year they do not make the playoffs the there's even more bad blood building between Murray uh, supposedly and the the Orioles uh, at some point really Murray completely stops talking to the media and you throw this into because if we know we've talked about this with 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 bonds we've seen this with a lot of different players I've talked about even with kenny lofton uh i've talked with a lot of different players that once you start to sort of get a reputation for being off-putting or, or uh standoffish with the media we talked about this a, a little bit even with with carl steve carlton was like this a lot of it where eventually what ends up happening is the media takes it to the extreme and really starts painting a a picture of you and like I said, this is where we start to see the the reputation for Murray that he was sullen, that he did that he was not a friendly person. It's so weird because then if you talk to any uh, any teammate of Murray, you'd get the exact opposite impression. You asked a fan, you asked anything, they'd be like, "No, this is the nicest guy you'll ever play with. That he is the best teammate you could ask for." And it was so it was such a huge contrast to then how the media was portraying him at the time doesn't help then at, at that point that the, the Orioles were terrible. They won 54 games. And while Murray was still putting up all-star level numbers, they weren't the numbers he was putting up before, you know, at his prime. And so this seemed to feed a lot of ammo to the, to the media. And it really kept building and building that rift between him and the media and between Murray and the team. And there's, I think it's unfair because I think a lot of it was at the time felt like uh, in the way it was portrayed was that Murray's numbers dipping, which I mean, they didn't dip much. So if you go into 1988, he hits 284. So he's not at 300 or whatever, but 284 is still great. With a 361 OBP, a 474 slugging percentage, an 836 OPS, and a 136 OPS plus, with 28 home runs, 84 RBIs, 74 runs scored, and 27 doubles. And what, like, it's worth noting. Now, Murray's 32, so he's not like like in his downward slump or anything. It's not like he's out of his prime, but it's not unusual to see a little bit of a drop at that point. But so you have to factor in age. He he played 160 games in '87, 161 games in '88. So you're just talking about guys who played a ton of games. He's already got a lot of mileage on his on his legs. And you look at it and go, maybe there's some place at which, well, he's 32. He's more probably in terms of baseball age, more like 35 or you know something like that. So it's not unusual to have seen something that a little bit of a slowdown here. But also, the Orioles stunk again. I just said they won 54 games that year. So when you're like, oh, his RBI numbers are down, no one was on base. He only scores 75 runs. Yeah, because no one could drive him in. We didn't see the same kind of pitches. He got pitched around a lot and didn't quite get the same looks and the same at-bats that he would have back in the heyday of the Orioles. So I think that while, the, uh, from what I understand, the media painted it in that direction a lot, that he's not trying as hard and all of these things 
that there's a lot, a lot of really great explanations and context to explain those slight drops rather than just saying he wasn't playing as hard or wasn't playing as well. But this all comes to a head, and at some point, it's, it's not fixable, right? It didn't help that at this point the fans turned on Murray too, and so he was getting booed at games, getting tons of insults and things thrown at him at the games, at his home thing. And again, this is a legend. And uh, crazily enough, again, you talk to Orioles fans, and you're talking about a beloved player, and they, they turned on him. And it was just, I mean, it was irreparable. There was just no way to fix it. And so at the end of the season, the Orioles finally decide to move on from Murray, and they trade him to the Los Angeles Dodgers, where Murray felt reinvigorated. And you can hear, if you listen to the way he talks about baseball after leaving the Orioles at this point, you get an idea of how strained everything had come. So right before spring training, he's interviewed, and he says, I think I'm going to have fun again. The key thing is having fun when playing this game. It's going to be a learning experience uh, playing in the National League for the first time, but I've never been one to shy away from a challenge. And it just, it sounds like someone who's, all right, I really think I can start over here. And it's wild to think that at some point the team moved on from a guy who's still putting up great numbers at a 136 OPS plus, like I said, in 1988, just simply because it almost felt like they needed a scapegoat of some sorts. And we've seen that on teams before where the owner needs someone to blame other than the owner. The coach needs someone to blame other than the coaches. And it's easy to pick a player. And it's not shocking that at some point that it was an aging guy in the team whose production started to dip but was still elite. And probably, I hate to say it, but one who didn't go along with the media very well. And who knows if there's race at play there or anything like that. But you really felt like Murray felt like he could start over here in L.A. Now, he wasn't that far off when he said that it was going to be hard to, to make the adjustment. Now, first off, he, as I mentioned before, he's from Los Angeles. Murray was from Los Angeles. He's coming home. But... At the same time, while he's coming home to to play for his hometown team for the beloved Dodgers, there was just a ton of turmoil, apparently, and uh, difficulties at home. And his Murray's mother had died in 1984. His sister, Lucila, had died from a heart ailment in 85. His younger sister had kidney trouble and was fighting through that all the basically for the rest of her life until 2003. Things were not great at home, just in terms of stress and strain. And the hard part is you want to say that it's easier being at home. It's easier even with all that to to not take that into the ball field. But that's unrealistic. And I think that there's something to be said for the idea that we run into this place where we don't oftentimes, especially sometimes historically, think of these players as people. And we don't, we'll be like, oh, there's got to be a mechanical reason, or there's got to be a something in the analytics or the way he's doing it. And at some point, it's just, man, just things were hard and stressful, and those things are bigger than baseball. And so, of course, they carry over onto the field. And you have to imagine that's what happened here. Murray really struggles in his first year with the Dodgers. He, there in 1989, hits 247 with a 342 OBP, a 401 slugging percentage, a 743 OPS, which is the first time, by the way, in his career he had an OPS below 803, which was his rookie year back in 1977. So over 12 years, he had at least an OPS over 8. 
he's still good for a, a 113.0 plus. So it's not like it was a completely lost season or anything. He had 20 home runs, had 88 RBIs, seven stolen bases, 29 doubles, and 66 runs scored. So like he was good. He just wasn't great. He wasn't Eddie Murray. He's 33 at this point, and we mentioned all the stress and the the things going on at home. And so he really has a tough and probably by his standards poor debut season for for Murray there with the Dodgers. The Dodgers, and this is also a bit of a rough time for the Dodgers. They were not the elite team we often think of them at this time. They finished fourth in the NL West that season with 77 wins. And many wondered if the Dodgers had gotten a lemon if they had bought after his decline. And if you would have thought that, you would have been wrong. Because here's Murray's frankly, probably his best season in the majors. He comes up and over 155 games in 1990, hits 330 with 414 OBP with a 520 slugging percentage and a 934 OPS, which is good for a 159 OPS plus. He hits 26 home runs. He drives in 95 runs, scores 96 runs, hits 22 doubles and steals eight bases. Just a fantastic season for Murray. One heck of a bounce back. He Think of it this way. Again, you don't necessarily think of Murray as we don't think of him when we do the list of who are the most feared hitters you know, of their time periods and things like that. But Murray actually leads the league that year, leads both leagues, as a matter of fact, with 21 intentional walks. That was the third time in his career that he had led the league in intentional walks. That's how good he was as a hitter and how feared, frankly, he was as a hitter. He wins his third Silver Slugger Award that year and finishes fifth in MVP voting. He had, let's see, he had 5.2 war that year. And like I said, finished fifth. Certainly should have won it. Bonds had 9.7 war that year. and well-deserved MVP win there. But it still was a great season for Murray and a huge bounce back season as people are starting to wonder if at 34, if he had anything left in the tank. And trust me, he had a lot more left in the tank as we move into the 90s. The Dodgers end up jumping up from fourth place to second place in the NL West. And a large chunk of that was because of Murray's rebound season. Now, as we head into 1991, Murray sees again a bit of a dip in his batting averages. He's just 260. And actually, he sees quite a bit of dip across the board in his numbers as he, across 153 games, also only has a 321 OBP, a 403 slugging percentage, and a 724 OPS, which was good for just a 105 OPS plus. It's just 19 home runs and 23 doubles to go along with 96 runs batted in, 10 stolen bases of all things, and 69 runs scored. He is an all-star that year, despite struggling a little bit, because he got off to a really hot start at the beginning of the season and tailed off the the end of the season. Again, he's 35 years old. That may not be the most shocking thing in the world, but he still has a very good season. He's still, again, above-average hitter. There was a little bit of a drop-off there in Los Angeles. It's not all rough season, though, for Murray, as he is awarded... I mentioned he was an all-star, but he, that was not the end of the accolades he earned that year. He was named Baseball's Man of the Year that year. And then it was also named Sports Person of the Year for the very first Los Angeles Black Sports Hall of Fame ceremony. He was struggling a little bit. He, it was clear that people recognized 
Murray's contributions and what he meant to the city of L.A. and what he meant to baseball. And it's good to see that recognized because I feel like historically we have not done a great job since then of remembering and recognizing Eddie Murray and his greatness. That's also not the only thing worth mentioning for this season for Murray. So while Murray did struggle throughout chunks of the season, in June he hit just 229, in July he hit 172, and in August he hit just 261, he came alive in September. It's 315 across 30 games with six home runs, 24 RBIs, and an 877 OPS. Just a whole new hitter. And he had some moments that would put him forever in Dodger lore because he goes on an incredible run here in which he crossed a couple of games, had hit several home runs. He basically, the Dodgers ended up tying the Braves at the time for the division lead heading into September. And this is on September 4th. Murray is given uh, a break. He's been at a toward pace, but he, he was given a day off. Yeah, I guess he was nursing a sprained ankle and a sore back. And so they wanted to rest him up. And the the Dodgers were rallying back to try and come back in a game against the St. Louis Cardinals. And so they asked Murray to come pitch hit. And this is back when Tommy Lasorda was managing the Dodgers. And Lasorda is quoted as saying, "If I, f- I figured if I ever needed a home run, it was right now. I had Murray for one shot. I figured that we may not get this chance again. I had to go for it. So Murray's asked to come pinch hit here in, I want to say, is the the seventh inning. Okay, so they're down three to nothing at this point, right? So they go get Murray. They had to go to the tra- to get an idea. By the way, they had to go to the training room, according to the story uh, that's told here in the Saber article I mentioned. They had to go get him from the training room. That's how hurt he was. And so he he basically limps his way to the plate to come hit for the pitcher. And Murray comes out and (laughs) ends up working count at two and two. And he ends up getting a full count. He ends up fouling a bunch of pitches off. They get to the sixth or seventh pitch in the at-bat. And then he just absolutely crushes a ball over the fence, hits a home run, Ties the ball game at three all. It, the crowd goes crazy. They're having a, they, they're just going bonkers for him, chanting his name, and then the Dodgers are going to score several more runs and win the game. And at this point, that home run was the fourth home run by Murray in five days, and was actually the second pitch hit home run of his career. It just an incredible moment in an incredible career, and again would cement himself in uh, Dodger lore. Unfortunately, it wouldn't last for Dodgers fans as the team would fall apart a bit towards the end of the month and would end up coming short of catching up to Atlanta and maintaining that tie for the division lead and do not make the playoffs that year. This was also the season where Murray would surpass 2,500 hits, and you really felt, despite some of his struggles or his numbers dropping a little bit in his age, you really would have felt that this would have been the place for him to spend the rest of his career here with his hometown team. And it's clear he had a lot still left in the tank. But despite this, the Dodgers going to the offseason apparently weren't willing to offer him more than a one-year contract. So Murray ends up signing a two-year deal with the Mets at that point. Now, the Mets 
And this is always remember the 83 World Series, and we will always remember the sort of playoff performances of Murray and of the Orioles in those runs. A decent chunk, and we'll get to later on when he sees the playoffs again later on in his career, but there is this decent chunk of Murray's career from really from like 1984 through uh, really until 1995. It's almost 10 years where he's on middling and not great teams. And the Mets weren't any different in 1992 as they only win 72 games that year. But Murray is uh, solid. He hits 261 with uh, a 336 OPP with a 423 slugging percentage, a 759 OPS, which is good for a 115 OPS plus. He hit 16 home runs with 93 RBIs and 64 runs, uh, 27, I'm sorry, 37 doubles and four stolen bases. And it's worth noting for Murray, one of the things he really always evaluated by was knocking in runs. And for the most part, that will always be his trademark is that no one drove in runs like Eddie Murray for his career. And that was even when his batting average was slumping, even when the power started to disappear, he still was able to drive in runs. And that always made his bat valuable. It is worth noting, though, that this is the season that Murray surpasses 400 home runs. So at this point, he has over 2,500 hits and 400 home runs in his career. And you start to see the path, obviously, to a clear Hall of Fame uh, hitter. Now, moving on to 1993 with the Mets, he hits 285. So we suddenly see the, reba- the uh, batting average rebound. He only has a 325 OBP with a 467 slugging percentage of 792 OPS, which is good for a 112 OPS plus. He hits 27 home runs. He's a huge rebound. It's 37 at this point. And this would really be the last great power season of his career. But he drives in 100 runs. He has 28 doubles and scores 77 runs as well. He does not make the All-Star game. He does not get the MVP votes. It's it's a little, a little surprising. We look at the advanced numbers, and it makes some sense. He was only a 112 OPS plus, despite the 27 home runs. But either way, he still had a pretty darn good season, again, considering his, his age. Now, despite this, though, the Mets are not good. They are downright terrible. They win just 59 games that season. And I just want to point this out for a second. Here's the team that he's playing on, right, at this point. Eddie Murray's playing first base, right? He hits 27 home runs. They've got Jeff Kent at second base, who hits 21 home runs at 270. They've got, they come down, you've got Vince Coleman on that team, and you got Bobby Benias on this team, and they still stunk. Wild thing, they also have Jeremy Burnett's on this team. There's some really interesting players on this team. I, I, I want to one day do more research into the, the 1983 Mets to just, figure out what in the world happened here because there's some talent on it and they just weren't good. They just were bad. They had Dwight Gooden on the, on the team, Brett Saberhagen. Uh, it, it's just really interesting that, that this team was not good, but they weren't, they only won 54 games, like I said, and Murray aging and, and looking for to further his career. He wanted to also win, and so he was looking for, for a team he thought could win, that was kind of, but also was willing to sign him to multiple years and give him some security. And this leads him to what I know him for, which is when on November 1st, 1993, after the season, he signs with 
the what are now the Cleveland Guardians and at the time were the Cleveland uh, Indians. This is where I, as a child, so it's 1994 right now. We're heading to 1994. I'm nine years old. I have no idea who Eddie Murray is. The only thing I know about him is that he's old as dirt. That's literally the only thing I knew about him. Again, I was nine. Give me, me some slack here. And just like everybody else, I grew to love him. He was just steady. We knew in Cleveland we could depend on him. And he really fit the blue-collar mentality and, and, and persona in that town. It was really a, a cool thing to have him there. But this is when he came into my sort of purview as, as a baseball fan. Now, somehow, Eddie Murray's played so long in the league, starting in 1977 to here in 1994, that he has actually not gone through one player strike, but two of them, as we have once again found the dreaded 1994 strike that really messes up this season. He Cleveland plays in 108 games. He plays in all of them. And he admittedly struggles a bit. He hits just 254 with a 302 OBP and a 727 OPS. This is the first time in his career. Now at this point, he's 38 years old, right? So he's played 16 seasons already. This is the first season he has an OPS plus below 100. He hits just 17 home runs, drives in 76 runs. And again, this is the kind of thing that you're talking about. Even when Murray's struggling, he's still driving in runs. He steals eight bases, scores 57 runs. All in all, a bit of a forgettable season there in Cleveland. But this was the year before the storm, so to say. This is the calm before the storm for Murray, for Cleveland, for for how he would cement himself in Cleveland lore, so to say. Now, 1995, obviously, is also slightly shortened by the strike, as we know. But he he has a fantastic 1995 season once it starts. He was coming up on 3,000 hits, so he knew that was something really really was something he wanted to achieve. He go, starts off red hot. Apparently, he, hit, he got hits in 16 of his first 17 games. He played almost every day. And this is one of the greatest offensive teams of all time, right? The 1995 Cleveland team is just unreal in terms of both their ability to score runs and, and hit home runs and do all of these things. And Murray was in the heart of that lineup. I want to say he hit fifth in the lineup at that point. And... He ends up hitting for that 3,000 hits. To tell the story, he the, in the game he got the 3,000 hit, apparently he was hitless in his first two plate appearances. And he would end up pulling a ball between first and second base to get a uh, to get his 3,000th hit and also get an RBI by driving into our bell, which kind of at this point you have to start thinking 3,000 hits. We know that's like one of those numbers where it's like, especially for this time period, is, okay, that's a Hall of Famer, right? And I'll say this, as a as a nine-year-old, obviously, I'm not the, well, I guess I was 10 at this point, so, you know, now I'm a very worldly child. I don't think it, that was, I don't remember that being the rhetoric around Murray, was that, oh, this is a Hall of Fame guy. I mean, it, there was certainly a lot of praise heaped upon him for, you know, his veteran status and being one of the, the better players throughout the year and how long he had played in, in the league. And I just don't remember it necessarily being talked about that way, but you know, we know he's got 400 home runs at this point, 3000 hits. Like that's, that's a hall of famer. And I, I wish I had kind of known that 
because I think while I loved Eddie Murray, I don't think I would have. I don't think I appreciated him in that way, and I would have liked to have. I would have liked to have known I was watching a Hall of Famer play. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to do that much as as a Cleveland fan, and so I just, I just like I said, I just wish I'd have been more aware of that at the time. Um, now he does end up uh, missing some time. He gets hurt um, and misses roughly about now that. 3,000 hits, that's that's a Hall of Fame career. He's fantastic that season, by the way. It's 323 across 113 games played. He, he battled some injuries in the middle of the season with a 375 OBP, 516 slugging percentage, and 891 OPS with a 129 OPS plus. He hits 21 home runs with 82 RBIs, 68 runs scored, and 21 doubles. For, for a 39-year-old, that's pretty darn good in the heart of one of the best offensive teams in the league. Cleveland ends up winning the division by an insane 30 games and actually heads the postseason. And this was a huge deal. I, if you weren't in Cleveland, I don't know how to describe how big of a deal this was. This is the first time they'd been in the postseason since 1954. Not won the World Series, not... I mean, this is the first time in the postseason since 1954. And so we're talking almost basically 41 years. I, like, I remember what this meant to my dad, who was a, you know, a lifelong Clevelander, who, who was Cleveland Indians fanatic. Like, I remember what this meant to him. It was a huge deal. The city was buzzing for the first time about baseball. It was just, it was really something else. And as a 10-year-old, I just gobbled it up. I just loved every second of it. And Murray was a big part of that. It was a big part of that team. So now they go to the postseason and absolutely dominate. They sweep the Red Sox in the division series. Because now Murray's played so long. He played both before there was the division series and and after the division series. And they sweep the Red Sox in three games. Murray's great. He he ends up hitting... uh, 385 over the series with a 467 OBP and 1.236 OPS. He has a home run. He has a triple. He has three RBIs, three runs scored in the series. Then we move on to the ALCS against Seattle. And I've talked about the series a bunch because we've done a bunch of different Seattle players from this time period and a bunch of Cleveland players from this time period. But uh, this is a, a big series. And the... Uh, Cleveland's actually losing most of this series and then end up winning the final three games of the series to to beat Seattle and go on to the World Series. And Murray's solid in the series. He goes on to uh, hit just 250, but he does have another home run in the series with another three RBIs, with another two runs scored. He has a double, uh, just another solid series for Murray. And he had several pivotal moments in that series against Seattle. He had a big two-run home run in Game 4 that helped Cleveland win that game. And then in Game 5, he drove in another run with a single. He doubled later on in the game. So he was a big part of that game. Now, we move on to the World Series, and overall, Murray struggles, right? He hits, now this is facing Atlanta, so we're talking maybe one of the best pitching rotations of all time. But he is just 105. He does have a home run, three RBIs, and a run scored in the series. And he actually has, while he did not do much in the series, when he did, it counted. Cleveland loses the first two games of the series. 
And it's worth noting that while Cleveland had won the division by 30 games, while they had one of the best offenses in the league, and all of these things that really look like an impressive team, it's hard to ignore the idea that, for the most part, Cleveland was the butt of every joke, both as a city and, and, and listen, I get it. Our river caught on fire at one point, all of those different things. But it's hard in that Cleveland back in like the days of Andrew Carnegie and things, that was one of the biggest metropolises in, in and one of the wealthiest cities in the country. And the steel industry collapsed in the 70s and the 80s here in America and, and in Cleveland. And that devastated the city. And it's just now starting to recover from that. But we were at the time the butt of every joke. And at 10 years old, that mattered a lot that we hear things like the mistake on the lake and when you're a child that 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 really stung it was really and, and there's a reason why the cleveland indians are the are the, the center point of major league about a team that's supposed to be the laughing stock and that's how bad cleveland had been coming into this season and once they lost the first two games it really felt, yeah, here we go again. Look at how we're being exposed as the pretenders or back to the Cleveland ways. And then game three comes around and it's basically must win. You don't want to go down 3-0 to, to the Atlanta juggernaut that they are in that time period. And so they, they battle back and the, the game ends up going to extra innings. And in the 11th inning, up comes Eddie Murray with runners on first and second and he comes through with an absolutely clutch walk-off single uh, to win the game for Cleveland. And that was the first World Series game Cleveland had won since 1948, right? 1948. It's just so, that's so long. That's a lifetime, practically for some people. And I, I, I don't know how to describe what that felt like. Again, I was 10 years old, so my experience of it might be different. But I remember Murray getting that hit and running around the the house just yelling because I had gotten to stay up and watch the game, like I said. And my dad was just losing his mind and was just celebrating. We are high-fiving everywhere. And it almost felt like overnight, in some ways, you'd go outside the next day and everything was a little different. We were still struggling as a city and things like that, but, but we held our heads a little higher. And if you ever go to Cleveland, I recommend you do. It's a cool city. They've done a really cool job rebuilding that city and, and letting it blossom. But I, like, it's hard to describe, but they live and die with their sports teams. It's a really great sports town. They really draw a lot of their identity, a lot of Midwest towns do, from their sports teams. And after Murray's hit, after they win that game, we all were a little prouder. We all held our, our, ourselves a little a little taller, a little straighter. And that all came off the bat of Eddie Murray. For me, that's where he will always hold a special place in my heart and a special place in Cleveland lore, right? Now, unfortunately, of course, in heartbreaking fashion, Cleveland goes on to lose this World Series in six games. And it's something I don't like to talk about. It's why I'll never be a Braves fan. I will never root for them. I hold a grudge. Just now I am. But with that being said, this memory, I'm much more of a journey than a results person, so I can hold on to the good memories and the good moments and not necessarily focus on the end result. And this memory, this place Eddie Murray will always occupy in my heart, in my, my, my memory as a fan and being a big part of this team that was the reason I became a baseball fan. 
and Edmer is a part of that. So he'll always be really special to me, and it's because of this year and this series and, and, and being a part of all that. So now we head into 1996. They're coming off the World Series, and everyone really felt like they were coming back, that this was, you know, gonna they were going to make a return run. But they actually ran into a bit of a conundrum when it came to Murray. Now, Murray's 40 years old at this point, and while still a, a, a good baseball player and a serviceable hitter, of course, he was basically the DH at that point, and he was good, but not so good, and this is understandable given his age, if, that a young and up-and-coming team where, if you look down the line, yes, they had, say, 37-year-old Julio Franco at first base, but they had Carlos Baerga, who was 29, Sandy Alomar, who was 30, Omar Vizquel was 29, Jim Tomei was 25, Albert Bell was 29, Kenny Lofton was 29, Manny Ramirez was 24. Like, you come into this place where, as you start going down the list, they're a young team, and they had waiting in the wings a couple of young players that really needed to find playing time. They had Jeff Kent there in the infield. They had Brian Giles, uh, who was 25 at the time, and would later go on. We've actually done an episode of Brian Giles uh, that would eventually go on to really star for Pittsburgh. They had Jeremy Burnitz, who was showing a ton of potential at 27. They just didn't really have quite the space to let those guys get playing time and have Murray on the team at DH. And Murray was also on the cusp of a huge milestone. So he's right on the verge of, I believe, at 479 home runs heading into 1996, right? So he's just 21 away from getting 500. And basically, he starts the season with Cleveland. And he does pretty well uh, through, he's right around through the end of July or so. He's hitting 262. He's got 12 home runs. He played in 88 games. He was doing well. But at the time, Peter Angelos, the owner of the Orioles, starts reaching out to Cleveland and saying, hey, we'd like for Eddie Murray to hit home run number 500 in an Orioles uniform. And so he really started you know, negotiating with Cleveland. Murray came forward and said that that's also his wishes, that he would like to hit number 500 in an Orioles uniform. And it ended up solving Cleveland's uh, sort of logjam for them. So on July 21st, they end up trading him back to Baltimore, and it all ends up working out as on September 6th of that year, they were actually contending. They were coming up, they were in second place in the AL East at the time, and they were fighting for a postseason spot. They were playing the Tigers at the time. So they come up, and in, I believe, in the bottom of the seventh, it looks like, he comes up, and he ends up hitting home run number 500 to tie up the game. He had hit nine home runs since being traded. He was just doing great. He ends up hitting just one more throughout the season. And then what's fascinating is, like it's traded from Cleveland to Baltimore, Baltimore ends up making the playoffs as the wild card. And so for the year, before we jump into that, though, just to kind of give you an, an overview, total, Murray hits 260 for the season with a 743 OPS, which is good for just an 87 OPS plus. So not great, but he still had a place in the game. He still could at least somewhat hit. He had 22 home runs, and again, he's 40 years old at this point. 21 doubles, he scored 69 runs, had 79 RBIs. But as I said, Baltimore makes the playoffs. And who did they face in the first round, of course? But Cleveland. And... It's just, I remember this. I remember feeling like 10, I'm, I'm actually 11 at this point. I am 
heartbroken to see Eddie Murray, who I loved, on this other team coming at the play us and it's funny i think nowadays as an adult i'm like oh murray now of course murray got to make that choice and he deserves to make that choice and looking back on it's such a big deal for him and for his career and for the orioles fans that he got to hit 500 there but as a kid i didn't get all of that and get all the context so i was very bitter at the time um and of all things the orioles ended up beating cleveland in the series they win it in four games murray actually had an RBI in the Game 2 victory, and overall for the series hit 400 with that hit with uh, for the RBI, as well as a double. He walked three times, he had a 967 OPS in the series. Go figure, those things always end up coming back to bite you, but it was cool to have Murray get that moment and that series back in an Orioles uniform, even if I didn't feel it at the time. Big picture, I'm glad it got to happen for him. Now, they'd go on to face the Yankees in the ALCS. Unfortunately, they would lose in five games. But Murray has a pretty good series. He hits 267 with a home run, two RBIs, uh, a run scored. He walks twice. He has an 820 OPS for the series, which is pretty darn impressive, again, considering he's 40 years old, right? Now, they go into the offseason, and Murray's now 41. He... You just have to wonder how much he's got left in the tank. He's surpassed every major milestone because he's ended the season with 501 home runs. He's over 3,000 hits. You just kind of have to wonder what he's got left to really prove. But he tries to give it one more year, and he ends up playing just 55 games in 1997. He decides to come home, and he had already gotten his, to end the career in the way he wanted to and have all those milestones in Baltimore. But he wanted to take a, one last... I don't want to say like a victory lap or something like that, but just really end his career in his hometown in Los Angeles. So he signs with the Anaheim Angels and LA people before you jump on me, I get that technically people from LA will claim that Anaheim is not a part of Los Angeles. I don't know that geography all that well over there, but they're the Los Angeles Angels, that's who they are. And so he gets to come home and, and, and get one last run in. He plays 46 games for the Angels and uh, struggles pretty mightily hits 219 which is three home runs in those 46 games that's just a 591 ops the angels end up releasing him and he doesn't have to travel because he ends up signing with the dodgers he makes nine pinch hit uh, appearances on the season he goes two for seven with a pair of walks and what's really one of the cool things is he, he has 3255 career hits right the last one was a home run in september it just a cool thing. If you're going to have to go out, that's not too bad a way to do it. And there is, it obviously was clear from the production that Murray didn't have much left in the tank, if anything. So looking at it, you know, he's 41. He's he's achieved really every milestone that he was going to reach. And with that, he decides to retire. Now, he retires and ends up coming back to the Orioles as a coach, serving as the first base coach, I guess actually first bench coach, then first base coach for them for a couple years. And then he can come back to Cleveland. He was actually a hitting instructor for three years with Cleveland. And then he ends up moving and doing the same thing for the Dodgers in 2006 before finally retiring from the game for good, both as a player and a coach. Now, in a way that's interesting, because again, I think we talk about legacy and how we think about Eddie Murray. And like when you hear his name, you instantly think of Hall of Famer, do you think of 500 runs and all these things. 
in 2003 is the first year he was eligible for the Hall of Fame. Comes in and gets 85% of the vote right away. And that was his first time on the ballot. No hesitation. They knew for sure how good Murray was. Murray would also go on for much of his, for his life, post-playing, post-coaching, would dive into being an extremely active philanthropist. He created several camp programs for baseball and camping and various things like that to help people grow, and especially working in the inner city and things like that. He won the Roberto Clemente Award multiple times and worked with sickle cell disease and worked with the American Red Cross, United Way, United Cerebral Palsy. And really, despite the way we sometimes see Murray put out there in the press and the media as that sort of surly guy who never trusted the media and never got along with the media, he conducted himself exactly like we we want former athletes to give back, to, to pay it back to where they came from and, and help and, and take their privilege and their wealth and, and those things and their their fame and whatnot and use it to help others. And the best part about Murray is he did it quietly. He did it without fanfare. In fact, was incredibly private about what he did philanthropically. It's just a really impressive man and lines up so much with what his teammates and his coaches and everyone who ever worked with him talked about Eddie Murray. And there's... There's this thing where I think, again, we, we talk about what is the legacy of Eddie Murray. And if you want to think of it this way, there are only five Orioles Hall of Famers who have statues outside of Camden Yards, right? There's Cal Ripken Jr., of course, but also Jim Palmer and Earl Weaver, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, and right mixed in with them is Eddie Murray. And that tells you how much he meant to the Orioles and to Orioles fans and how much they respected his contributions. And I feel like we just don't talk enough about him when we talk about some of the all-time greats. We don't talk enough about him when we talk about some of the greatest Orioles to ever play. And I don't think we really talk enough about whether or not he is really one of the best hitters to have ever played the game. There are only seven players who have actually managed 3,000 hits, and over 500 home runs. There's, starting with Hank Aaron, Miguel Cabrera, Willie Mays, Rafael Palmeiro, Albert Pujols, Alex Rodriguez, and Eddie Murray. And that is that's incredible company to be a part of, right? And when we talk about who are the greatest hitters of all time, Many of those names would come up. I mean, maybe not Palmero, but we would all start naming off Willie Mays. We'd start Ralph Miguel Cabrera and Hank Aaron and, and all those names. And right in there is Eddie Murray. And I think that's impressive. And I think that's something that we don't talk enough about. So I'm hoping that today I'm able to to get a few more of you to ask, what is... Murray's legacy. Where does he belong in this list of the greatest hitters to ever play the game? And what is his place in the history of baseball? More than just a name where sometimes, oh yeah, that's right, he was pretty good. That we talk about him more and that we give more 
credence to the things he was able to accomplish. In fact, actually, now that I think about it, that's the whole reason we're here. Let's actually, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we are going to take a look at where Murray falls on our list. Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Welcome back. So now let's take a look at our list here because I think this is going to be an interesting exercise. In asking the question that I proposed at the start of this episode, which is how do we value consistency over all-time performances and, and, and more peak greatness and things like that. And because I've talked about this before on the podcast, that I tend to try and value them equally, that I think there are multiple paths to being a Hall of Famer and being an all-time great. And being as consistent for, what, almost 15 years that Murray was is, is something really special and an elite skill and something I think we have a tendency to undervalue. I was thinking about this, that if you look, ESPN did a top 100 a few, gosh, about two years ago, and the Murray was not on it in the top 100, despite being one of seven players to hit 3,000 hits and hit over 500 home runs. And he also, the, the Athletic, did the same thing. And you guys know that's a list I, I refer to a lot on this podcast. And again, not in the top 100. And that is one of those things where I just, I don't understand it. Other than, I think we tend to underrate players who are consistent versus that have players who have moments, five to seven years of true greatness or maybe 10 years of true greatness. Murray was good, if not great, for nearly two decades. Uh, and I think that we, we just underrate that. Um, we call them compilers or we do things that, and I, I just don't think that's fair. And I don't think that they're being, he's being properly ranked in the annals of, of baseball. And I will fully admit there's some players on the list that are higher just because of their, also their, their, how important they are to a team. And obviously that can be a bit subjective. We're going to get there in a second here, but I think that there's an important place to figure that out and see how we feel about those things. But I want to at least start by saying I view, say, someone like Murray and his consistency just as highly as I say do the the peaks and the 
elite output over a shorter stretch of time that, say, Griffey might do or something along those lines. But before we dive into the list where Murray ranks on it, let's actually revisit the list just so we have an idea of where we're talking. So to go through the top 20, number one is Sadaharu O, number two is Satchel Page, number three is Ted Williams, number four is Josh Gibson, number five is Barry Bonds, number six is Mickey Mantle, number seven is Greg Maddox, number eight is Mike Trout, number nine is Ricky Henderson, number 10 is Ken Griffey Jr., 11 is Ichiro Suzuki, number 12 is George Brett, number 13 is Adrian Beltre, number 14 is Shohei Otani, number 15 is Clayton Kershaw, number 16 is Edgar Martinez, number 17 is Sandy Koufax, number 18 is Tony Gwen, number 19 is Hank Greenberg, and number 20 is Nolan Arenado. Jump down to 25, that's Manny Machado, number 30 is Steve Carlton, number 35 is Jose Ramirez, number 40 is Freddie Freeman, 45 is Corey Kluber, number 50 is Kyle Hendricks, number 55 is Whitey Ford, number 60 is Jose Bautista, number 65 is Cabrian Hayes, number 70 is Ronald Acuna Jr., and number 75 is Mark Pryor, and number 76 is James Paxton. Where do we start? I think, honestly, a good place to start is let's look at number 18, Tony Gwen. Both are players fairly famous uh, for their consistency and their year-to-year production and their longevity and their ability to be solid, if not elite, all-around hitters. Now, looking at it, Gwen has 69.2 war over his career. Murray is 68.6 war. But Murray played in almost 600 more games than Tony Gwen did and has almost yeah, almost 3,000 more plate appearances has more hits, has almost 400 more home runs than he does, has more RBIs, almost 800 more RBIs. Gwen has more stolen bases and had him beat in batting average with a 338 batting average to Murray's 287. They're pretty close in OBP, but Gwen still wins at 388 OBP compared to Murray's 359 OBP. But Murray then has a beaten slugging percentage. And then actually, fascinatingly, they're basically dead even in OPS. Murray has an 836 career OPS, where Tony Gwen has an 847 career OPS. And Gwen has a career 132 OPS plus. Murray has a 129 OPS plus. They both are in the Hall of Fame. Murray won a championship while Gwen didn't. Gwen was a 15-time All-Star, which is wild. He did well deserve it, but just that's so many. Mur- uh, well, uh, Murray was an eight-time All-Star. We mentioned there's a couple years we think he really should have won more than that. Gwen won eight batting titles, five gold gloves, and seven silver sluggers. Murray never won the batting title. He finished second one year, had three gold gloves and three silver sluggers. And this is a great, just right off the bat, an interesting and fascinating comparison. So, like, Gwen and, and Murray probably an overall value are very close and very similar. But we have to ask ourselves at some point, Murray's maybe one of the most famous Orioles to ever play. Gwen is one of the most famous Padres to ever play. And I guess at some point it really boils down to, do I value home runs and RBIs over some of the more cumulative stats, like batting average and OBP? At the end of the, the day... They're just two very different players who end up with sort of similar value and got to it in different ways. But we're talking probably about 370 home run differences. And then you throw in that Murray actually had more hits than Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn's, that's thing. It's like he's the hit king. And I love Tony Gwynn. And so I'm not downing on him. 
But I think when you go, he's got more hits. He has more home runs by a long shot and more RBIs by a long shot. And that's not necessarily fair. Gwen was a leadoff hitter for a large chunk of his career and whatnot. But Murray also hasn't beaten runs and hasn't beat in uh, walks, hasn't beat in... It's actually interesting, in case you're curious, hasn't beaten intentional walks, because Murray is currently the all-time leader in intentional walks. Uh, he holds the record for intentional walks. They're dead even in war. They both were, it's interesting, they, neither of them were great defenders. Uh, Murray ends up with a minus 11.6 defensive war, by war at least, while Gwen has a negative 7.6 war. We, we talked about when we did the Tony Gwen episode that a lot of us, he was an elite defender early in his career and tailed off towards the midpoint to the end of his career. Both kind of would clash with, with the media at times, but I think just looking at 3,000 hits and 500 home runs while leading in runs, RBIs, he's got him in doubles. I just like it. There's a point where I'm like, nah, I, th- I think I go Murray over this, even though I think it's a lot closer than I initially thought it would be. So that, that's really fascinating. But for now, I think I'm going to put Murray up ahead of Tony Gwen. So now we go to Sandy Koufax, and this is, again, Koufax's peak is up there with anybody, right? It's hard to argue that for the time that Sandy Koufax pitched in, that there was any better pitcher. And when you talk about telling the story of baseball and doing all those things, again, it's hard to beat Koufax. But with that being said, I think that this is a question of longevity versus peak, because... Murray's going to end up having a lot more war than Koufax. Yeah, nearly uh, 20 war, in fact. And then you throw in all the accolades and all the things he's accomplished. And again, Koufax really only had 12 years in his career compared to the 22 of Murray. Murray's peak, so to say, extended for like probably almost 15 years. So his peak was almost longer than... Koufax's entire career. And that's not Koufax's fault. His, his arm fell apart. But I think it still remains that I would put Murray ahead of Koufax here. We get to Edgar Martinez. And I looked at Edgar Martinez, and they're very similar. They have the same amount of war, but Co- Martinez was a DH his whole career. Well, Murray mostly played first base. He DH towards the end, obviously. But, but he has almost 200 home runs over Edgar Martinez, while most of their other numbers are pretty close to the same and I think that for me puts him above Edgar as well Kershaw's at number 15 and and I think this brings up a really another interesting debate I think when it comes down to it's so hard to compare a pitcher to a hitter in this in this sense and especially considering one that hasn't finished their career yet I've only pitched it about 16 years but I think if we're being honest there's an interesting awards debate here, and we're running really long, so I will try to not lag on to this, but Kershaw's got three Cy Youngs, an MVP award to go to his name, where Murray has no major awards. Uh, Kershaw's won the Triple Crown. He's won the ERA title five times. He doesn't quite have the... He has all these things that are, I think, go above and beyond what Murray has done. But then you have to ask yourself, is that because of the way we value consistency in that sure Murray never won an MVP, but if you look down the line at his career, he basically has one, two, three, four, five, six top five finishes in MVP voting, and I, I think I've said by war, I don't think he should have won any of those, but it is 
worth mentioning that I think some of those things is because of how we value a peak year versus a versus a longevity sort of award. And with that being said, I think three Cy Youngs is and being the signature pitcher of their era. And I have a feeling when we do the re reevaluation episode at the end of the season, I have a feeling Kershaw's going to actually get bumped up quite a bit. But I think this is a good resting spot for Murray because we get above that. And we get the Adrian Beltre, who has him beat by almost 30 war. George Brett, who has him beat by 20 war. And, and well, I think it's worth having Eddie Murray in that discussion with those two guys. I, I think I'd put both of them ahead of Murray. So I think behind that's Otani, uh, then Kershaw. And I think between Kershaw and Edgar Martinez, I think it's actually a perfect spot for Murray. And it, I think pays tribute to just how good he was and how underrated he is, is that I'm about to make him on my list the number 16 player. And I think we can do better looking at players like Murray and appreciating what they accomplished and what they've contributed and really paying attention to their numbers and also, frankly, doing a better job of not letting the media, and I'm going to sound like one of those, ah, curse the mainstream media people, and I don't mean that uh, in that way, but I do feel like Murray's relationship with the media changed how they then presented him to us. And frankly, as fans, can changed how we were able to connect to him because we weren't getting articles and we weren't getting interviews and we weren't getting all those things that we tended to forget how great he was. And I think that if things had been different in that area, I think we would talk about Eddie Murray a lot more because we'd recognize his greatness. We'd talk about him, I think, frankly, like we do. Freddie Freeman or something like that, like these more consistent producers, Anthony Rizzo, that kind of thing that I used to set a comparison. And I think, frankly, by the way, because I got Freddie Freeman down at 40, I think that's actually going to be a really fun... You look at that number 16 and you go, oh, if, if Freddie Freeman does his whole career, finishes out, this is actually like right around where I could see him ending up. So uh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. But I think right here between Clayton Kershaw and Edgar Martinez is a perfect place for Eddie Murray. So he is now our new number 16 on the list. All right, so that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. I know this one went a bit long. It's hard with some of these players who have this long career, and I debated whether I wanted to split this into two sections or not, two episodes. I felt like when I did that with Ricky Henderson or a few other players, there was like a nice natural splitting spot. And I didn't really have one for Murray here. And so I, I really wanted to just put it into one episode, but uh, thank you for hanging there through it. I think it's a really fun episode. I think it's a really important player to talk about. I'm not sure who's coming up next. I'm still figuring that out in my head, but I'll let you know the moment I find out or uh, just tune in when the next episode drops in probably two weeks, I'm going to guess. I'll try to get it out next week. In the meantime, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. I hope you all had a really great Labor Day last week. And other than that, have a great time. Catch some baseball. The season's wrapping up here, and we will see you on the next one. You can find me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter or X. You can find the podcast at LB Legacies on that same site. And you can always email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com if you have a player suggestion or someone you'd like me to cover maybe next week, or if you just have comments or questions or anything like that. And I'll just love to chat with you. So until then, have a great one, folks. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.